ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I think it's been received as a positive statement of intent, but with widespread scepticism verging on cynicism about announcements. My government is concerned with the fight against inflation. Peter Dutton's concerned about fighting culture wars. And I think if the Prime Minister wants to renege on an election commitment he's taken to the last two elections, I think he should call an election. The housing system is cooked in this country. And I was praying that the Minister and the government would finally wake up to themselves and do the right thing. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Rudgery Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly, host of Saturday Extra on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And PK, is it 2001? Is it 2013? I'm having flashbacks. Stop the vote, boats. Protect the borders. It's deja vu all over again in Canberra, and it's all about the boats. Yes, Fran, that's right. It all kicked off again because of this group of uh, uh, 40 asylum seekers who landed on a remote section of the WA coast on Friday. So it kind of broke over the weekend and, and became a bigger story. The people smugglers boat had landed undetected by border force officials. In fact, a local indigenous community had used its kind of drone and had seen it. So quite quite the story. Mm. And Eventually, two groups of them in different places. I that's mean, it, was, right. it sort of really unraveled over the weekend, didn't it? Yeah, they, they, they certainly um, were able to, to get on, the, on dry land and travel. Um, once they were eventually found, they were whisked away to Nauru because that's the policy even under Labor, offshore processing. But opposition leader Peter Dutton knows a gift horse when he sees one. And on this, he feels like this is his territory, strong territory for him to make political points. He was quick out of the blocks, accusing Anthony Albanese of being weak on border protection and worse, diverting funds away from the task here is. The government's cut uh, cumulatively about $600 million out of Border Force and Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, as the Commissioner of the Australian Border Force has pointed out, the, the organisation is stretched. And it's not just uh, the illegal people smuggling boats, it's also the illegal fishing mm. that takes place in our waters as well. So there's a lot of uh, anecdotal reporting from uh, from fishermen and from trawlers up in that part of the world that they're just not seeing uh, the amount of surveillance flights and Border Force operations uh, as was the case a few years ago. So, Fran, he really dialed it right up to 11, right? The government was ready this time. It had a strong response, arguing that nothing has changed in its commitment to Operation Sovereign Borders and the architecture in all of that. The only thing that's changed is temporary protection visas, one section, but overall boat turnbacks, all of that architecture is still the same policy. The Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, joined our own breakfast on Tuesday and countered Peter Dutton's attack. Your listeners would have heard Peter Dutton kind of wandering around the country in a somewhat unhinged manner in the last few days telling what are easily disprovable lies about what is going on with Operation Sovereign Borders. Our funding has increased under our government by $470 million. We have invested an additional almost half a billion dollars in this operation compared to what the previous government was looking to spend. I thought there was a pretty strong rebuttal by Claire O'Neill on breakfast the other day. She seemed to have the figures at her fingertip. It was different to the performance after the High Court um, decision last year. I think they really 
did have their ducks in the row this time. The Prime Minister weighed in behind her. He's accused the opposition leader of acting like a, quote, cheer squad for people smugglers. But most helpful of all to the government's defence on this PK was the intervention by those on the front line of the borders. The commander of Operation Sovereign Borders, he's a guy called Rear Admiral Brett Saunter. He came out insisting publicly the mission remained the same under this government, the Labor government, and warned against people, anyone, he said, without naming names, politicising this issue. And then the actual head of Australian Border Force, Michael Outram, weighed in on the funding stoush and released a statement saying funding for border security was the highest it's been since its establishment in 2015. So, you know, that seems pretty clear, sort of. Sort of. It is an extraordinary intervention and we'll analyse it more and really drill down into this claim and counterclaim. David Crow, the Chief Political Correspondent with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, has been poring over those details because it's been a war of words, but I do think the intervention of the Australian Border Force boss was quite significant mm. and pretty unusual isn't it very I mean, unusual we've been watching these arguments as i say back since john howard's time and it's quite unusual for the the public servant if you like involved to come out like that mm. so what's motivating them what are they worried about we'll talk about it more with david crow but pk we spoke last week about the fallout from the video of nationals mp barnaby joyce drunk and splayed out on the footpath in canberra I'm sure everyone remembers that he fell off a planter box uh, now one of his colleagues has been caught up in this debate about booze in the parliament the deputy leader of the nat senator perrin davy um, appeared to be slurring her words at a late night senate committee meeting last week now she later acknowledged she had had two glasses of wine at a nationals irregular staff drinks function the nats have in parliament house and then she went into the committee session she was being accused of being drunk while at work she's since come out and revealed that she's actually got a medical issue she says she had two throat operations five years ago which affect her speech and and now when she's tired or she's stressed or she's had a glass of wine she she can slur and stumble over her words. And, you know, while that may be the case, PK, it has nevertheless reignited this whole debate about the culture, the drinking culture particularly, in Parliament House. Independent MP Zali Stegel is leading this charge. She's now calling for random drug and alcohol testing on the Hill. Will you commit to legislating for random alcohol and drug testing of MPs, senators and staff in the federal parliament due to the apparent ongoing issues with too much alcohol consumption. But I can't see that, can you? No, I can't see it uh, because there's no political support. The Prime Minister hasn't backed it. The opposition isn't backing it. So it's not going to happen. But I think putting in bright lights scrutiny on politicians and the way they conduct themselves in politics is reasonable and these are reasonable questions to ask. Now, even if we accept the defence of Senator Perrin-Davey, right, I accept on face value that, sure. that assessment, she still did concede she'd had a couple of glasses of wine. I think most people would accept, and it's the standard in most workplaces, again, back to standards, that you don't have a couple of glasses of wine and then go do your job. I know that used to happen, for instance, in journalism, I used to see it happen, but it doesn't. I don't have a couple of glasses of wine and get on air because it's not appropriate and it's unprofessional, right? Yeah. And so if you're doing your job and her job in that case was going to a committee and, you know, asking questions and, you know, this is an important part of the parliamentary process, then it's 
an understatement to say it's not a good look. And so it's not a sort of partisan thing, although both of these cases have been in the nationals, that in fact the culture has changed in Parliament House. Do you think it's changed significantly? I mean, when when I was there based in Parley House a long time ago, there was a very big drinking culture initially. It, It did start to ease off, but nevertheless, there was still, you know, alcohol pretty much everywhere, really. Yeah. Now, since the Jenkins review and the scrutiny that started after the revelations from Brittany Higgins, there has been a massive difference in the culture and it needs to be acknowledged. And so... You know, is it a parliamentary-wide issue? Well, I think there are pockets where this is an issue still, and that's why keeping the scrutiny on it is important and making sure that there aren't double standards is important. And, you know, is random testing a good headline? It's a great headline and it might be very populist. I don't have random testing at work. I'm just expected to operate in a professional manner. And so... I think that when the parliament comes up with its standards, they're landing on that, that just guidelines is where it's going to be. And so personal responsibility and the responsibility of the parties will be important. Yeah, and, and that's how it should up. be. I mean, if we have to start drug and alcohol testing our politicians, then something is very, very wrong. Hey, this seems like a good time to bring in our guest. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's test him. David Crow is the Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age. Welcome to the party room. It is great to be back and talking to you both. Yeah, we love having you on the party room, David. You're a real friend of this podcast. Thank you. Look, PK and I have already talked a little bit about boats, specifically borders and boats, which have been dominating the political debate this week again. But speaking of boats, the federal government announced its plans to reshape our Navy into a more lethal surface fleet, more than doubling the size of that fleet from 11 to 26 boats. The total cost of the program will be $54 billion. $11 billion of that is apparently new funding to try and accelerate the build. How's this been received? I think it's been received as a positive statement of intent, (laughs) but with, I think, widespread scepticism verging on cynicism about announcements. There's $11 billion more, but that's $1 billion a year over a decade, roughly. It's not a massive amount in the next four years, so it's not going to break the budget when that's released in May. And of course, we've got statements about what will happen. I think one of the key statements is there'll be a new fleet of seven to 11 frigates that will be built, but they don't know who's going to build them. The very threshold question, though, is important. The first ones will be built offshore. They've accepted that they need to buy from overseas rather than build them all in South Australia because that's the faster way to get these frigates. But they don't know where they'll come from. They could come from Germany. They could come from Spain. They could come from Japan or elsewhere. So there's going to be a long process to choose those boats. And this is one of the reasons for the sceptical response, which is we've seen announcements before. Mm. We've Mm. seen commitments to get you know, fantastic sounding boats from Scotland, for instance, and then the cost blows out, they're delivered too slowly, and everybody starts to wonder. And by then they're the wrong ship for the wrong time. Exactly. Things change. For instance, the Hunter-class frigates, they're going to have six of them rather than nine. These are the ones that are being built in Scotland and South Australia. There is that concern that they've got the wrong boat, they committed to too many of them, and the cost blowouts and the time delays mean that they've really messed that up. And I think that explains the concern about this latest statement. It sounds great, but will those ships be built in time? Huge question. Yeah. I mean, David, Richard Miles has called this an acceleration. 
the first new acquisition of a general purpose frigate isn't due to arrive until, what, later this decade. Mm. Some coming much later, as you've just outlined, the Anzac class ones have been decommissioned, two of them within the next two years. So it seems like there will be a capability gap, right? Was that inevitable under any government? And how vulnerable does it leave us? I think the capability gap is totally linked to politics. There were six defence ministers during nine years of coalition government. So any idea that there was some kind of consistent long-term planning, I think, is a bit of a joke. I'm going to play now, devil's advocate a bit. I, I kind of can't help myself. I know that, that that's an argument that's been made, but it was the same government and they had an overarching approach. I mean, the PMO was involved like at that level. Does it make that much of a difference if well, a minister chops around? Well, hang on. I'm going to jump in now because I can't help myself. But because <laughs> a capability gap like this just doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it must have been these things are years and years in the planning. So the coalition in opposition now is taking pot shots at this government. But this gap must have opened up because of their planning timeline, wasn't it? And it's feasible to go back and look at the Rudd and Gillard years and say, well, look... They and say the same have, they, about them. They could have acted faster, right? I, I guess that's true of every government, but six defence ministers is a fairly sobering number. Also, they had three different plans for the submarine fleet over those nine years. The Japanese submarines that Tony Abbott wanted to buy, the French deal that was done in that transition from Tony Abbott to Malcolm Turnbull, and then, of course, AUKUS. So it's quite apparent that there's been too many statements of intent while we wait for delivery of outcomes. Um, now, looking at the situation this week, it's feasible that there might have been a decision some time back that might have accelerated things a little bit faster. There was talk in 2022 that it could have made decisions then to buy some boats built overseas based on ones it already had. They've held back more than a year in order to give it some further thought. I don't think that additional year is a, a major issue, but I think um, they can't afford to drag it out anymore. And, and now it's on them to deliver. Now, David, I might be testing your knowledge and expertise here, but all this, you know, the Shadow Defence Minister, Andrew Hastie, he's welcomed the ambition of the plan, but, but then he insists the minister should focus on what he can fix by 2026. You mentioned there, can the government get something that's in the water in the next couple of years? What is the options? It's not like a, there's a ship supermarket. You can just go and buy one off the shelf, the even though that's the, 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 the phrase be price they gouging. use. I mean, how much does a ready-made ship cost. And of course, they're not ready made. They still then need to be built, don't they? They do need to be built. It's interesting when you visit these shipyards. In Spain, they're building corvettes for customers around the world. Mm -hmm. So if we wanted a modified version of something like that, they are being produced at a steady rate in those European shipyards. So that is feasible. The question is whether the Australian Defence Force would want to customise that ship in a big way. The more customisation it wants, the slower it gets the greater the risk of the cost blowouts. We saw that with the Collins class, didn't we? That's exactly. Going back to that. David, I want to move to another big political story this week. Fran and I already touched on it at the beginning of the podcast. Border security is back uh, as a discussion point. I've talked about it generally, but we want to drill down with you if you can. The government says it's increased funding to Border Force and they were backed by Border Force themselves who say, you know, funding has never been as high since uh, 2015. You've been poring over the budget papers. Who's right? It's really important to say that the government is right when it says that it is spending more on border enforcement. That's true. It's in the budget papers. There are complexities to this. And also, there are some problems with how the money is being spent and whether they're doing enough surveillance, right? So that's separate. But money is up. This year, the money for border enforcement in the budget papers 
is greater than it was under the coalition. It goes up. Another key point here, the money being spent in this financial year, $1.3 billion or so, on border enforcement alone, is greater than the coalition forecast for this same year in the budget papers before the election. So you cannot say that Labor is spending less than the coalition plan to spend. That's just not the case. Now, the coalition claim of a cut is based on the next couple of years. So there's no way that you can say that there's a cut that has contributed, for instance, to the arrival of 39 asylum seekers off the WA coast in recent weeks. That's not linked to any cut in border enforcement spending. The budget papers do show that after this $1.3 billion this year, next year it's expected to be $189 million less. And then it'll be a little bit flatter in later years. One important point to make about that is that if you extrapolate that over multiple years and you add up the reduction over several years, you might in theory get to a number like $600 million, which is what the coalition claims is a cut. But it keeps using the past tense for that cut. Mm. Oh, the government has, mm. has cut $600 million, has ripped $600 million out of border enforcement. The key point here is that when this came up in Senate estimates last year, the head of the Department of Home Affairs, Mike Bazzullo, who's no longer there, said very clearly that is not a planned reduction. And you can see this in the budget papers. Often they do forecast a slightly lower level of spending in future years. The coalition did the same, but then in the end it actually spent more. So the forecast of a different number three years from now I think is a very different proposition to saying there has been a cut. Okay, but if there's been no cut to the budget, let's assume that's right, and as you say, the head of border forces said the same thing publicly, then why has there been fewer surveillance flights and patrols lately? If all's working well, how did a people smuggling boat drop those 39 people up the coast from Broome? This is the, the worrying thing about what's happening. They're sending fewer maritime patrols out of Darwin, and they are sending fewer surveillance flights out from wherever they start. I'm not quite sure. Probably a range of destinations. And why is that? Is that the weather or is it funding or personnel? Staff. What is it? According to um, government officials in Senate estimates, it's about staff. It's about the fact that sickness and illness meant that they couldn't send out as many maritime patrols. They don't have enough staff. So flying hours are one measure of surveillance and flying hours are down, 14% down. This is a point that the coalition spokesman in this area, James Patterson, has made, I think, very effectively. But that, I don't think that that can be linked to money. And mm. I think that does raise a valid question about whether the government needs to fix this basic capability because the 39 people who arrived in WA, the boat did not seem to be detected before they arrived and there's been no news about whether a boat has been spotted after they arrived. Yeah, There's a lot of ocean there to monitor, but... Is that good enough? Okay, so the intervention of the Australian Border Forces, Michael Outram, seemed to me unusual. T two interventions, in fact, in a number of days. Is it unusual and has it got anything to do with Peter Dutton? I think it's got a lot to do with Peter Dutton and I do think it's unusual. Michael Outram, as Australian Border Force Commissioner, was appointed by the coalition to that post. He worked with Peter Dutton as Home Affairs Minister. So, you know, he's he's Did worked Peter Dutton really sides. annoy him? Him. I don't, yeah. Is that I don't what you're saying, David? No, I, I'm trying to make the point that he is a sort of a, somebody who's worked for both sides of politics. I'm trying to make the point that it, I don't think it was personal. He was standing up for the agency when there is this big debate in the community about whether his funding has been cut and his capability has been weakened. And he put out that public statement in the wake of a statement from the Operation Sovereign Borders leader, 
Brett Sonter, a military figure, because they're both concerned that there's this impression that their work is being weakened and undermined in some way and they don't want that to be picked up by people smugglers in Indonesia and the impression given that there's a weakness to be exploited. Look, I want to change again, if we can, and switch the topic to what we're seeing play out overseas, which has huge ramifications here. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has pursued a legal challenge to stop his extradition from the United Kingdom to the United States, where he's facing 18 criminal charges. That's currently continuing at London's High Court. We're recording this on a Thursday morning, everyone. Now, back home, after voting in the Parliament last week in support of his release, this week the Prime Minister revealed he's raised the issue at the highest levels in the US. We don't know exactly how he's done this. Here he is. I have raised at the highest levels with the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, Mr Assange's case. Uh, I have put the view uh, very clearly privately, as I have publicly, that enough is enough. It's time Julian Assange was brought home. I can just confirm uh, that uh, I certainly uh, have raised it because that has been the subject of discussion, including with uh, President Biden yes. uh, when uh, when we were there and did a yeah. press conference. There you go. That's pretty interesting. The PM saying again, as he has many times, you know, enough is enough, but also making the point he's raised it with President Biden. And David, there is a precedent here. Back in 2007, John Howard intervened directly, went to George W. Bush and said, you need to release Australian citizen David Hicks, who was in Guantanamo Bay, accused of providing material support to terrorists. After a plea bargain, Hicks was then sent back to Australia. Could our Anthony Albanese do what John Howard did and insist, or has he done that? Do we know how strongly our government is pushing this? When I asked Anthony Albanese about his discussion with Joe Biden, this is in an interview after his trip to the White House, would not say a word about contents of that discussion. So we don't have much to go on in terms of how the Australian side is pushing for an outcome, what kind of outcome they might see. A key issue here is a plea bargain does not seem to be on the table. Julian Assange and his legal team just don't want that scenario. They don't want him to go to the United States at all. So they're resisting extradition every step of the way because they fear him being put in prison in the US for a very long time. So unlike the Hicks case, Without a plea bargain, it becomes more complicated in terms of getting him home. Uh, and at the moment, they're really having to rely on an outcome in, a, in the High Court in the UK and see what happens there first. So it's an extremely difficult situation, and it actually is quite challenging for the Australian side to exert any major pressure on the US government, especially in a US election year, to try and force them to allow uh, Julian Assange to come to Australia without facing any US legal process at all. Mm. Yeah, you can see the politics in that writ large, can't you, for them? I think that's right, and I think there's a recognition that for President Joe Biden to allow Julian Assange to come back to Australia would leave Biden exposed to attack by mm. um, Donald Trump. That's ongoing, and we'll, we'll see what happens next. I just want to talk about this by-election that looms and the sort of issues that have been dominating in the cost of living space at the same time, because I think they're the ones framing this by-election. It's kind of going a little under the radar, but the Dunkley by-election is quite key, a big test for everyone, I think, and to see how everything's going to shake out. 
two twin issues, I think. Competition and supermarkets have been a big issue. And then we got wages data, which kind of helped the government along in their framing that, you know, wages are moving under them. David, how have the, has the government been handling these two issues and, and as it looks to that key by-election? I think the government was a bit slow on the supermarkets front, but now they're really stepping things up because they've got um, an ACCC supermarkets review. They've also asked former Cabinet Minister Craig Emerson to look at the supply chain to try and look at grocery prices. So they've wised up to the fact that that's where issues are biting. It's not about the issue that Peter Dutton raised, you know, buying Australia Day merchandise at, at the supermarket. It's about the cost of groceries at supermarkets. So Labor's been sort of full on on that front. At the same time, I think there's been a relatively smooth response to the tax cut decision on stage three tax cuts. Last week in Parliament, Labor asked Dorothy Dixis of every minister about tax cuts. The Coalition asked every question about border protection and boats. The Coalition has stopped trying to put pressure on the government over those tax cuts. So I think that issue is clearly working in Labor's favour ahead of that by-election. Except so maybe I'm, the Coalition can see from polling or whatever that they're in the field that it's the immigration issue is resonating with the voters in Dunkley rather than the tax cuts. You know, we've said in the past voters historically bank a tax cut and then move on and go, what now? The Coalition is clearly thinking that it's got an advantage on border protection and it's got to exploit that. They're basically given up on tax cuts, or even let's look at the bigger picture, they've given up on the idea of blaming Anthony Albanese for a broken election promise as a winner for them in Dunkley. So getting back to the cost of living issues, supermarkets, government promises action, but I think will struggle to bring down the cost of what, it, what you pay for your, your basket of goods. Tax cuts, they've got a, something delivered or being delivered. And on wages data, there is this glimmer of hope that real wages are actually now starting to rise because wages growth is ahead of inflation. And the timing of that could not be better for the government, given the, the, the March 2 by-election. David, it's great to have you always with us on the party room. Thank you so much. Great to chat. It's a busy Thanks, year. Thanks, David. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Andrew. Here he is. G'day, PK and Fran. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit. How are political parties looking at Australia's changing demographics? By the year 2030, anyone of voting age under the age of 49 will be of the millennial or Gen Z generations. When will be the tipping point on intergenerational issues such as negative gearing reform and renters' rights? Or will the transfer of wealth quell these points and the status quo will still satisfy the majority? Remembering that 2030 is only six years or two elections away. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. Good question. Look, I think the tipping point, I think we're seeing it now actually writ large uh, and perhaps even larger at the next election. I mean, the reality is we're already there. The biggest voting block uh, in this country at the moment is already millennials and has been for the last, I think, couple of elections. But you're right, that's not necessarily reflected in the policy priorities of governments when we think about, as you say, the, the tax breaks, negative gearing for investors, perhaps often it's a bigger percentage of those might be older Australians, the superannuation tax breaks for older Australians, you know, the Grattan Institute.
Institute has done a lot of work on this about how a lot of the tax breaks in this country are geared towards older Australians. But we've talked a lot about it on the podcast, in the housing debate in particular. I think one of the reasons we saw the Greens emerge with more lower house seats last election than we were expecting, certainly than Labor, I think, was expecting, was because they were focusing on issues like housing, issues like renters, and some of the changes in those Blue Ribbon Liberal seats too, um, where the focus of the Teal, some of the Teal independents were on issues like climate change and housing. So I think we saw that democratic shift have a big effect on the shape of our parliament last time. I think it's likely to be even more pronounced next time. And I think both the parties are aware of it. I'm just not sure that they're quite quite know what to do about it. No, what do you think, Pika? Yeah, no, they've been warned. So there was this piece of data that came out, which I found fascinating. It was from, uh, looked at voting trends, but it was from the sort of liberal-leaning Centre for Independent Studies, right? And mm. it found that by the time people reached their early 50s, uh, baby boomers and Generation X uh, were more likely to vote for conservative parties than progressive parties. But the trend is not being repeated among voters who are millennials and Generation Z, and that the percentage of millennials shifting their vote to the coalition is increasing at a much lower rate at each election mm-hmm. than it used to. So it's happening, as you said. It's happening now. More millennials and, and Generation Z people have been voting for the Greens and the Coalition at the last election. And if that continues, they predicted that the Coalition, get this, could lose another 35 seats um, looking you know, in the future trajectory. It's happening. And I'll tell you how you know it's happening, because... The coalition at the moment is having this huge internal argument and about how to pitch and housing, housing, housing is what they're being told, right? Like need to appeal to younger voters and they think the way to do it is through economics. Now, I think economic inequality that young people are feeling very acutely is the way to do it. Whether they'll get the right remedy is another thing. We'll have to see the policies that they come up with. I'm not sure that just saying, you know, use your super for housing is enough, it certainly wasn't at the last election, but it's happening. And that, and all of this data, can I say, the analysis was done by, as I say, the Centre for Independent Studies, but the actual data, which is worth looking at, is from the Australian Election Study, and that looks at political attitudes and voting behaviour in Australia. It's really interesting, mm. and it shows basically, yeah, millennials, Gen Z, and, and they're, they're moving to the left at a bigger rate than it used to be the case, and that is a big problem for conservative politicians. But it's even perhaps, as I say, a, a problem that should showing up for Labor and they're very concerned about their left flank too, with the Greens focusing so hard on some of these issues like renters. Think you're on to something, Andrew, is what we're saying, I reckon. I reckon you are dead right that that is a huge issue. So thank you for sending in your questions and we love getting them, especially in the voice form that that one was sent in. So thank you. You can email them to the party room at abc.net.au. And you can always follow us, of course, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it for the party room this week. See you, Fran. See you, PK.